we've been studying the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, in Hebrews 11:7, we've been looking at a summary, a two-sentence summary of the life of Noah, and you could wish that our lives would be so kindly summarized, right, even with all our imperfections, that hopefully, right, God would look upon us and see a life that exemplifies long walking in obedience to him in the same direction, seeking him and, and believing the things that he says. In, in Hebrews eleven seven, it says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so once again, what's wonderful about the Hall of Faith is that all of these people of old were commended because of their faith. Yes, Noah obeyed and built, but the way in which we and they attain righteousness and are accredited righteousness is by faith. That's the means by which it's done. Uh, and one of the nice things about that last song, we were talking about God's design of this universe and the stars and the seasons and and the day and night cycle, and, and one of the things that that song mentioned that's incredible is that God sees the depths of our hearts, and he loves us the same. And we see that in the story of Noah, that when God looks upon humanity, he saw all of their hearts revealed before him, and unfortunately in that gen generation and time, the hearts of men were continually evil, and we... <laughs> Uh, still have sin in our hearts, and that's the, the reason why we need repentance. That's the reason why Jesus had to die for us in our place for our sins, and, and that's the reason why we need to seek him for the forgiveness and the righteousness that comes by, by faith. And so uh, today we're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 8 primarily, is, is where we'll be focusing as the, the main text. And this is after the flood begins to recede, that yes, God brought just judgment on the world, but he also had simultaneously a plan for rescue and redemption of his creation. And so Genesis 8.1, in the midst of all of this chaos, it says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that, that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And so in the midst of God's judgment, God is able to simultaneously bring to justice the wicked while still preserving the righteous is the way that the New Testament reflects on these events as well. And, and God remembers his people in the midst of moments like that, in the moments of turmoil and suffering and, and tribulation. God does not forget his people. And one of the things that's going to be helpful for us to think about as well is that we should simultaneously... Remember God's promises in his word and be mindful of his faithfulness in his work in both their lives, which did happen, but it also is written and preserved in God's word as an example for us that it would change the way we live now and that we would also have hope in God's working in our future. Skipping, skipping down to verse 6, it, it covers a lot of different events in, in, the, in the flood narrative and the waters and the rising and all, the, all of this stuff, but in, in verse 6... Uh, it says at the end of 40 days, the next 40 days, the flood lasted longer than that, uh, Noah opened the window of the ark and he made and sent forth, uh, that, he, that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. 
Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove from the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. All right, and so uh, I've actually got a picture of a, of a little sprout that's an olive plant, and I looked up in some, I don't know, gardening websites. I found out that it takes 40 days for an olive plant to germinate. Uh, and somehow in my mind, I'm thinking like a tree needs to be big before it has leaves, but no, it's got a little sprout like that's got leaves too. And so that's one of the possible ways that God could have had uh, this olive tree all ready with a, a leaf ready for the dove to, to take and bring to Noah. And, and what's interesting about that is oftentimes we think about the dove as being the symbol of hope and peace, but the dove had returned prior to this with no olive leaf. And that didn't bring Noah hope or peace in his heart in that moment. The thing that finally brought him hope was this symbol. It was the, the leaf itself in its mouth indicating to Noah that something had changed about the world in that moment. That the world was going to be restored. That yes, destruction had happened. Yes, God's judgment was brought forth. But that God was remaking the world. And that symbol would have given Noah hope. In the rest of verse 11, it says that, So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he had waited another seven days and went, uh, sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. And so one of the things I want to point out is that Noah knew that the waters subsided from the earth as a result of, yes, God's word telling him what his plan was, but also in this moment based on the evidence that he observed, right? He knew that the waters were subsiding from the earth when the dove brought the leaf back, right? He had something in his hand that gave him hope that the world was going to become a better place once again. That even in the midst of all the destruction and chaos, he had hope knowing that God remembered him in the animals on the ark, but also that God was going to make a world again where things could grow, where things could flourish, where life could be fruitful and multiply. That his, his faith was sufficient for God to be pleased. His faith was sufficient for God to accredit him as righteous, as an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. But I want to point out his faith was not simply a blind faith. It was based in the promises and faithfulness of God and his character. And it was based on moments like this where he saw evidence of God making the world again all new. And, and I want to suggest that you and I have that same kind of hope. All right, That when we consider the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and then look at the world around us in the broken state that it's in, and the chaos that it's still in, and the sinfulness of humanity, right? Like, we might be like, this is, this is so screwed up, this is messed up. But when I look at what he's done, when I look at the promises he's already fulfilled, I have evidence, I have a symbol of hope that I can look forward to the fact that God will one day make this world new. That God will one day make the world all right once again. That it has been momentarily, Romans chapter 8, subjected in futility, but yet in hope 
that God is one day going to make the world new again. And we do not have to grieve. We don't have to merely look at the world around us and the evidence that we see. We can take hold of small pieces of evidence that God has revealed to us, that our faith can be grounded in, in this foundation of his word. And we can have hope looking beyond what we presently see, just like Noah did. So, uh, in verse uh, 13, in the 601st year, all right, the flood waters started when Noah turned 600, by the way. Uh, in the first day of the month, the waters dried off from the earth, dried from off the earth, all right? So the earth is still a little soggy, but the waters are meeting the ground. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth did fully dry out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so just as God made the world originally and designed and commanded life to be fruitful and multiply, he so too is doing in his remaking of the world in Noah's time. All right, he's sending them out to be productive, to, to bring about new life, right? To bear fruit after their kind is what God's designing. And I want to point out, like, oftentimes when we think of God's commands, we think of the, the thou shalt not commands, but the first command that God gives in the scripture in Genesis is be fruitful and multiply. And the first command he gives to Noah and the animals when they step off of the boat is be fruitful and multiply. He desires to see that the life that he makes, these self-replicating organisms, some of them made in his image, would be fruitful on the earth that he made, that he's designed for us to flourish and thrive in, that we would be representatives of him in the earth. That's what God commands them to do. And so verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And right, and so the world is new. Hope is found and experienced. They step onto this new earth, right, that had experienced destruction and turmoil as the fountains of the great deep had broken forth as mountains had been submerged, right, by the waters, and then towards the end of the flood, as God raises up mountains and lowers the valleys and the water recedes off of the face of the earth, the earth is new. Life is growing, and animals and Noah and humanity, right, are going forth to be fruitful in the world that God made. And what's interesting is Noah steps into this brand new world that God has for him, and the moment he steps off the ark, he's like, this is, this is significant. Right? This is like that one small step for man kind of moment. And he's like, I can't disregard what's happening here. I can't pretend as though what my generation had done before me is something that should continue. I can't pretend as though like God didn't just destroy all of humanity and life other than what's stepping off of this boat with me. Right? And, he, and he takes that moment and he realizes, I need to dedicate my life, my actions, this world as unto the Lord. 
right? I need to set aside all of humanity and, and lay us before God and just be thankful for his rescue and redemption. And so in verse 20, the moment Noah comes off the boat, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And now I want to point out, you might be like, oh no, he only had two of those things. Like he just extincted entire kinds of birds. Noah, what are you doing? Right, but no, 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 God had already instructed him before he got on the boat. Yes, two of every kind, but then seven of the clean animals. So he was prepared for this, this moment, don't you worry. Uh, but, and, and, and remember, the first time God mentions offerings in the Bible was in the story of Cain and Abel that we had studied. And this is the second moment in which we see this occur in the book of Genesis, all right, where, where Noah takes this moment and he's like, I need, to, I need to make an offering unto God. He just rescued us. And I need to, to signify this moment. I need to draw near to God in this moment. And that's what he does. And in verse 21, hey, rookie, settle down, bud. Mm-hmm. He says, yes, Pop. We watched Little House on the Prairie, so that's where our, our kids learn those. <laughs> yes, Pa, that's right. Uh, let's see, verse 21. So Noah makes an offering as unto the Lord, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And so what's interesting here is it says that God smells this offering that God makes, this burnt offering, and it's this pleasing aroma to him. And I've heard kind of in a joking manner just being like, oh, God must like barbecue, you know, is, is essentially what's going on. But it's, it's much more than this. And when we studied the, the story of Cain and Abel, we realized that sacrifices and offerings alone were not sufficient to please God. All right, that, that God in Proverbs 15, 8, the Bible says that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Or we read in Psalms, Psalm 51, David speaking, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so what's interesting here is, right, we, we realize like a sacrifice alone does not please God. Right? The, the thing that seems to be significant about Abel is that he mixed with his offering his faith. All right? By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. All right? And David goes so far as being like, listen, like, it's not even the sacrifice that you care about, God. It's me having a humble, a broken and contrite heart before you in which I'm desiring to draw near to you. That's the thing that pleases you. Or, or Hebrews 11 talks about, right, it is those who diligently seek him, right, that God is pleased with. It is without faith, it's impossible to please God. All right, the thing that pleases God is our drawing near to him. It's not necessarily Noah making an offering. And so when I consider these two things that feel at first like a contradiction, that God is, has this pleasing aroma that comes to his senses, and then him also in the scripture saying that he's not necessarily pleased by offerings. 
this is, this is the solution that I've, I kind of come to, is that the pleasing aroma, I think, to God, which is also mentioned in the book of Leviticus, by the way, in the offerings that are instructed to the priesthood, I think it's almost like a, an ascent association. All right, like if you think back to like Thanksgiving dinner at your grandparents' house, maybe like they would have potpourri out or some different smells, and maybe not all of those smells were things that were pleasant to you, but your olfactory senses are like so strong in your memory that when you smell something like that again, you, like all of those memories just come rushing back to you. And the thing that pleases you isn't necessarily the smell, but the person and the relationship, the family and the friends that they represent. And so when I read this about God, I, I wonder if the thing that pleases God is that this is Noah recognizing, yes, his own sinfulness, his need for righteousness, right? And his drawing near to God by making a sacrifice. And God's like, this pleases me. I can see you as you're drawing near to me. I can see as you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Like, that's the thing that God craves. That's the thing that God desires. Rookie, stop throwing things, bud. That's two. <laughs> right, right? So, so that's the thing that God is pleased with. He wants relationship with people. He doesn't want your dead animal, right? That's what God desires. He wants us to be with him. Even since Jesus has ascended, he says that he goes to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be with him. Right? Jesus wants to be with us. God wants to be with his people. God wants to make possible reconciliation with former rebels. Okay, that's what God desires and that's what I think God is pleased with when he sees and smells this sacrifice. And now what's interesting is it said that the Lord said this in his heart. Okay, that the Lord had noticed these things in his heart. And up, up to this point, we, even here it says that God now sees the intentions of humanity's hearts. Right, we are fully exposed to him. We are fully accountable to him, right? There's nothing that we can hide from God. But yet God, if he so chose, he could have hidden all of his thoughts and intentions from us. Right? He does, we don't get to see his heart on display in the same way that he sees us. And yet it's here, upon smelling this pleasing aroma, God immediately in his own heart says to himself, I'm never going to do it like this again. Right? Like, I'm not going to destroy the world like this again. I desire to see them be fruitful and multiply. God is speaking to his own heart. And what's interesting is that somehow this is revealed in Scripture to us. That God, perhaps in the next chapter, when he makes covenant with Noah, maybe he tells Noah, he's like, let me tell you about when I made my mind up about my intentions for my creation. It was when you made that offering walking off of the ark. Or, or maybe it's, he told Moses when Moses documented some of this stuff, right? He might, he might be like, Moses, let me tell you how significant this was to me. This was the moment I decided and I recommitted myself to my creation. This is when I made up my mind. That God, if he chose, would never have to reveal his heart to us. But yet he does. Fortunately, we are not left with trying to discern with the intentions of the creator merely through his creation. Although some of his attributes can be seen 
in the things that he made. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Right? Some of who God is can be seen in his creation, but it's not sufficient to know everything about him. Right? It's like if I went into my basement and found an old box of memorabilia from my wife uh, and had, it had some artwork that she made in high school. I could discern some things about her by looking at that work. I could have an appreciation for the person who made those things, but it is not even comparable to actually knowing and having conversation and relationship with my wife. And it would be sad and unfortunate if I'm like, no, 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 go away. I have all I need right here. This is all I really care about to know about you. I don't want relationship with you. That would be absurd and ridiculous. Right? God is brokenhearted when we choose to worship his creation over him. Or when we choose to only interpret who he is through the things that he's made. He hasn't only revealed himself and his heart through what he's made. He's also spoken to us. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, better than just having the scriptures written down for us, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? We have the words of the prophets. We have the words of Christ himself, in, in which he reveals the heart of the father, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, power, by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That we can know more about God than just the things that he's made because he's chosen to reveal his heart to us through the prophets, through the Son, and most interestingly, through the actions of the Son on the cross. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what's crazy is that God knows everything about us, but he chooses to die for us anyway. And that God's love, God's heart, the intentions of God's heart are revealed not only through his word, but also through his actions, being willing to die for us in our place, for our sins. And so, we can believe more than just the things that he's made and what that would imply about him, but we can believe what he says. And we can trust what he says because of his reputation and what he was willing to bear in showing his love for us. And so, let's check out verse 22 in Genesis 8. Here we go. And so this is God still speaking in his own heart. And this is interesting. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. That God recommits himself to his creation. And he sets in motion rhythms and cycles that will continue as long as the earth exists. That we see that God still has purpose and design in the world that he made. And that these things are going to continue. 
But when I look at this, I realize, wait a minute, while the earth remains kind of implies that it won't always be here. That even though God had destroyed the old world, which was corrupt, God remade the world, but the world that you and I find ourselves in is not his forever plan. It will one day end. That this world will not always remain. But nonetheless, while we are here, while this earth does exist and remain, there will be things that will never change in God's intentions for them. And one of those is cold and heat. And so, right, we shouldn't be surprised when it was suddenly cold out this morning. Right? Like, this is going to be part of God's creation as long as this creation exists. Right? This has continued since he made it and will continue until it ends. There will be cold and heat. And so this is somewhat encouraging me, to me when I think about like the second law of thermodynamics and the heat death of the universe and all that. It's like, oh, I guess I don't have to worry about that, even though that's predicted to be billions of years in the future. Right? Like, as long as the earth remains, as long as the earth is doing the thing that God intended it to do, there's going to be cold and heat. So that's not going to be the thing that takes us out. All right, that while the earth remains, there will be summer and winter. That God has seasons and has purposes for those seasons and those cycles. And that as long as I'm living on this earth, I can't be like, you know what, I don't think winter is going to happen this year. Like, I, I, think, I think it's just going to be perpetual summer for the rest of my life. And, and I'm not going to plan or prepare for winter because maybe winter won't happen. No, 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 that would be foolishness for me to live a life contrary to the cycle and design in the world that God had made, okay? And so what's interesting here is, is like we should prepare for these seasonal changes, right? Because th those things are going to continue. If, if we're wise, this is what we should do. Proverbs 6.6, 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. Man, I, I used to be such a lazy kid, and I'm still really good at being lazy when I try. Uh, oh, sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. All right, like we should prepare because God's seasons will continue as long as this earth remains. Uh, how long will you lie there, O oh, sluggard? <laughs> when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. All right, and so when it comes to seasons, we can't live as though winter will never come. Right, living in this valley, there's fluctuation, there's feasts and famine based on tourism, right, based on ski season, based on foliage, and if we're going to thrive and survive here, we've got to know when the jobs happen. We've got to work when the jobs are here, right? Like, that's what we've got to do. We know the seasons of the world that we're in. And that's a good and pleasing thing to God. How about this? Day and night, Joe, I skipped a verse, and I'm doing that on purpose. All right? God intends in our daily rhythm for there to be day and night. All right? That there's going to be times of work and times of rest, even within a single day, never mind within a week or within seasons, that he has this rhythms, the rhythms of rest built within it. Okay? That, that every day there will be night. That's the way God made it. Genesis 1 Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. 
Right? God, when he first made the world, there was day and night, and as long as this earth remains, it will continue. And that's actually a good thing for this world. Right? God designed day and night. God gives sleep to those he loves. Right? God intends on us to be able to find rest within our day. Each day when we get up, we should dedicate that day to the Lord. Right? Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We, sh- we should trust him to provide for us day by day. That when Noah stepped out of the ark, he dedicated his newly made wor- this newly made world to God and dedicated his life to pursuing and seeking him. And that's the same kind of thing that we should do when we wake up every day, right? Seeking God, having no intention nor plan, right? To seek after the evil desires of our hearts and just seeking after who he is. But what's interesting is that day and night will not always remain, the scriptures tell us. As long as the earth remains, it will. But in Revelation 21, uh, God... Uh, speaking about New Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. He says this, And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And then again in Revelation 22.5, And night shall be no more, They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so some of these rhythms and cycles aren't going to continue forever, but as long as the earth remains, they will. Now, I intentionally went out of order. The first one that was mentioned was seed time and harvest. And when I think about these four different cycles or rhythms that God had established, This seems to be the only one that we really have any degree of influence over, right? I can't stop cold and heat happening, right? I can't can't blot out the sun, right? I can't stop day and night. I can't stop summer and winter. I can't change the tilt of the earth, right? I'm unable to do those things, Rook, right? But nonetheless, my actions, our actions can prevent or promote harvest. Rookie, Everett. Buddy buddies, come on. Yeah, here we go. So, this is perhaps the most significant principle for us that we can participate in. Seed time and harvest. And I think about what Noah thought when he saw the dove return with that leaf. It would have indicated to him that seed time and harvest was still in operation on the, on the new world. And even the whole concept of him gathering these families of animals in pairs, male and female, was based on the principle of their species and kinds being preserved because of seed time and harvest in the new world was going to be a possibility, that they would be able to reproduce after their kind. And right, and so even when the world was still drenched and he sends out that dove and he sees it come back, he he realizes, wait a minute, if this is an olive leaf, that means that olive seed did its job. And as time passed, it sprouted, and this new world has hope for new life. And so what's interesting is, yes, seed time and harvest will remain as long as we live on the earth, but this is not merely relevant to those of us who might garden or be farmers. Because in the New Testament, 
right? We have this parallel concept of the life that we lead, the, the things that we say, the things that we do are like planting seeds in which we will experience a future harvest. Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who is taught the world share in all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, right? And so these deeds, this good doing is the thing that's being compared to seed planting here. It says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of the faith. And so what's interesting is that as long as the earth remains, Everett, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest will continue. That this is infused within the fabric of space-time. That this doesn't apply just to plants and animals. That God has infused within his creation this principle of seed time and harvest, and we can, we can either leverage it or we can experience the consequences of not doing so, right? That, that we are told that whatever we sow, we will reap, that the seeds that we plant will re- reproduce after their kind, as it says in Genesis, all right? That, that we shouldn't plant seeds according to the flesh because then we'll experience the corruptive harvest in return. All right, that's the same way that God described the world in Noah's day. Corrupted, destroyed, being brought to destruction, right? Being brought to this point of irreparable damage. And that's not what we want for our lives, so we must be intentional about the kinds of seeds that we sow. And what's interesting is it says that in due season, it will sprout. That it's possible to be discouraged while we wait. That maybe, it would, instead of saying seed time and harvest, even though that's not what the Hebrew says, it might be appropriate to think about seed, comma, time, comma, harvest, where there's this patience through which we must endure before we see the harvest come, in which we have hope, recognizing that the seeds will do their job. All right? And so, because it's possible that when doing good, you could have this false Negative in believing, I'm never going to get a harvest from this. And then that discourages us, which is what Paul deals with. But it's also positive, if sowing seeds according to the flesh, to have this uh, false sense of security where you're like, this is never going to catch up to me. I can keep doing the wrong thing and nothing bad has happened to me yet. But yet the scriptures say that if you plant according to the flesh, there will eventually be a harvest. And that what we plant matters. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. I've edited for content. Not in drunkenness. Not in sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so this is this interesting concept that like I should plan and prepare for winter in my real life, right? In my natural life. 
But when it comes to planning and preparing, there's one thing I should make no provision for, and that is for the flesh. That I have no intention of planting seeds and storing up crops in my barn for the sake of my own flesh and sinful desires. Right? That's something that I should not do. And what's interesting is in Genesis 9, you can read it on your own time, Noah, upon the new ground of the earth, plants a vineyard. He harvests the grapes, he makes wine, and he gets drunk. And whether when he was planting those seeds, he intended the sinful outcome, it's hard to know. But I want to point out that scriptures would tell us, make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Don't plan on sin in your future. Don't go out of your way finding ways to set aside and allocate resources and time for us to pursue our own desires. And so the point is, don't invest in future sinfulness. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul continues with this idea of seed time. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And in this case, he's still not talking about planting seeds and having a garden. In this case, he's actually talking about financially giving to meet the needs of the persecuted church in Jerusalem. And so he's applying it to more than just gardening. He's saying these concepts of seed time and harvest are built within the universe. And I've got a little chart, Joe, if you'd be willing to show it, skipping down. If I take the Genesis 6 and, or uh, Galatians 6 and 2 Corinthians 9 together, I kind of get these two concepts at play. All right, that, that what we plant matters, right? Whether it's to the flesh or to the spirit. And that'll determine what it reproduces. But also in 2 Corinthians 9, it's talking about how much we plant will determine the size of the harvest. And so if I plant much according to the flesh, I'll get a lot of corruption. But if I plant a little, I'll get a little bit of that corruption. Still not something you want to aim for. That'll subtract from your life nonetheless. But, and then in, in regards to planting according to the Spirit, planting much in obedience to God, led by the Spirit, keeping in, in step with the Spirit, will reap a harvest, a bountiful harvest, of even eternal life. But if we only plant little, if we only participate little in the things that God has called us to, we will still reap the same thing that we planted, but it'll just happen to be sparse and scarce. And then in addition to all of these, there's that additional factor of time and realizing that it will take time before we see those things produce. The most significant kind of seed we can plant is this, the word of God. In Luke 18 and other Gospels, Jesus tells the four seed parable, right? In which he describes the seed being scattered by a farmer and it lands on four different types of soils. And in the verses I have here for you, he explains the meaning of that, that parable. <clears throat> he says the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. All right, And so I want to point out that Jesus describes that the word of God is like a seed. And if seed time and harvest is still applicable in the universe that you and I find ourselves in, which the earth still remains, so it is, then as we plant the seed of the word of God, it will reproduce after its own kind. And what's interesting, in this passage, we actually see that both the enemy and God agree as to the nature of salvation. 
which I think is interesting when you have so, such opposites being in agreement, you should pay attention. They both agree that it is by believing the word of God that we're saved. And that's why the enemy works so hard to snatch the word of God, snatch that seed from being at work in the hearts of men. In verse 13, Jesus continues, And the ones on the rock uh, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Right, that that seed was not able to produce because of the rocky soil. And as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those that hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for those that are in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And so once again, the seed accomplishes its job. The seed will do the thing that God intends it to do. All right, that, that when it's found root, it will bear fruit. Okay, in uh, <coughs> Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, <coughs> but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. All right, in the King James Version, it says that the word of God will not return void, that the seed that goes forth will accomplish its job. And so whether in our own lives, exposing our own hearts to the scriptures, or whether in proclaiming the truth of God's word in our community, the seed can only do one thing. It can only reproduce after its kind. It will accomplish the thing that God intends. And if, as we continue to remain faithful as a witness in our community, it will bring about those who have hearts that bear fruit. Right? Not every piece of soil will be productive. All right, but we must continue to plant an abundant amount of seed in order to expect any bountiful harvest. And the seed will accomplish what God designs it to do. <clears throat> and so when thinking about these issues, we do consider the fact that the earth will pass away. And Jesus agreed with that. Rookie, sit down. In Matthew 24, if you scroll down enough there, Joe, <coughs> Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away. Okay, like in case it was only by implication in the verse that we read in Genesis, Jesus makes it clear. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's clear. This world is not going to last forever. Okay, but he says this, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so when we think about this, as long as the earth remains, God's rhythm and intention will continue. Right? That there will be cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, seed time and harvest. But there's one thing that will always remain that has stronger foundations than the foundations of the earth, and that is the Word of God. The Word itself will remain. And the word, when planted, will bear fruit. 
All right, we should, if we are wise, plan and prepare for winter. We should rest each day and night, right? Like we, we need to work according to the cycles of this life. We need to plan as though there is a tomorrow, but we also need to be ready that maybe there isn't. We need to recognize that our hearts need to be prepared for the possible surprising return of our Lord. Right? And so we, we have to balance those two things, the, the perpetuality of the earth and its cycles and knowing that one day it will cease. And in Genesis 9.1, so after Noah makes this offering, after God speaks to his own heart and recommits to creation, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That the plants, the animals, and humanity the seed that God sends forth into the earth will do its job and will, will bear fruit. And it has, right? We see based on the environment we're in today, there's more than just eight people on the planet right now. And so when Noah stepped out into the ark, he walked into a changed world and God instructed that humanity and all living things should swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And when Jesus stepped out of the tomb, he instructed the woman that showed up. He says, you need to go and tell the disciples. And then later on, prior to his ascension, he says to the disciples, to his followers, you need to go into all the world, into all the nations and preach the gospel, right? Teaching them to observe, baptizing them. You need to make disciples of all nations. That, that the word that Jesus spoke behaves as a seed. And in the hearts of disciples, he desires that we as self-replicators would reproduce after our kind. That we would go into this world and that we would be fruitful and multiply. And that God's word is the only kind of seed that can produce this kind of fruit. And so we're not going to accomplish it by trying to have different means to reach this world. The only seed that produces this fruit is God's word. And this seed will not disappoint. It reproduces after its kind. And so we can trust and have assurance in the word of God that it will remain longer than creation here itself. And that it will reproduce after its kind. So let's be a faithful church, a faithful people going into this world, trusting in God's word, letting it bring forth fruit in our lives and inviting others to be reconciled to the God that loves them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, within this world, there are good things that you've given for us to enjoy. But yet at the same time, we as believers must not be at home here. We cannot let our satisfaction and joy come from this life. We must recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Lord, help us as believers, as your, as your followers, not to be caught up in the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, help us to live life with wisdom here in which we are wise with our work and our rest and our planting and our sowing and our harvest. Help us to be people who are wise with our resources, but we would not merely spend those resources for our own selfish gain. Help us to recognize that you are faithful to give seed to the sower as well as bread for food. And that, Lord, each day you give us seed, you give us means, uh, you give us sufficient means for us to be faithful in walking out the good works you've called us to. 
And each day we must choose, are we going to eat that seed or are we going to sow it and plant it, believing and trusting in you that you will be the one who brings the increase in a future harvest. I pray, God, that your word would encourage us, that it would strengthen us, that we would realize that it is resilient and will accomplish what you've sent it to do. And Lord, help us with boldness, full of grace and truth, speak it to this world that is not yet in its fullest and most complete form as you desire it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.